Hey, everybody, this is Kevin Couchman with the podcast Get This. It's the show about things people love. And I'm coming to you from the St. Paul studio on Monday, October 5th, in the foul, 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 thrice foul year of our Lord 2020. And I'm joined by John Rosengren. John, how are you? Hi, Kevin. I'm good. Um, <laughs> I'm coming here from the other side of the river in yeah. Minneapolis, uh, my home. Right. So nice okay. to see you all the way over there on the other side of the river. There you go. Well, we're, we're God's doing country the, over there, right? That's it. That's right. It's a little more mellow over here in St. Paul. We're doing the little twins handshake right here, Minnesota. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can we can uh, you know hit a home run here uh, on this podcast. Unlike the twins, what is it? Eighteen straight playoff losses unheard of in the history of baseball just people are pathetic yeah well there you go but um and so john this is a show about things people love we see all these books in your background here uh, literally on zoom for people for people listening uh john sitting here he's got maybe maybe 100 books in the background i see four sturdy shelves bunch and john, of hemingway right there bunch of hemingway right there and that's I, what yeah. that's what oh, we're yeah. gonna Sorry, Fran Tarkington football right there. Okay, okay. <laughs> He's pointing to the books here. Um, and John, you're a, and you, you already got to what we're going to talk about today. It was something you love. We're really, you and I both share a mutual appreciation for, for Hemingway, I think, on a deeper level than most people. We'll get into that. Uh, but John, first a little bit about you. You're in Minneapolis. You're a, you're a journalist, correct? Yes, guilty as accused. I've been doing this since 1981. Wow. Okay, well, I have to, we have to unpack that a little bit. So where are you from originally? I, I was four years old when I started. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, was, I was growing up in Wayzata, Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis, and my high school journalism teacher encouraged me to start freelancing. So I was a senior in high school when I started freelancing. But I really got serious about this, I guess, around 1998 uh, when I, I started working full-time as a freelance journalist. I'd done stints along the way. Um, and then I, I, so I published articles in a bunch of publications and uh, written nine books. Nine books. And I, I'm sure one of them is about baseball. Am I mistaken? Uh, three are about baseball. Three yes. are about baseball. All right. One about a biography about Hank Greenberg. I should probably have those so I can show them. But picture yeah. this. Use your imagination. Hank Greenberg, the hero of heroes. Right. The biography of the Jewish Hall of Fame slugger. Well, we are back in the renaissance of radio here. So we can, I think we can make the sound of a hit, right? Yeah. We just, there you go. Oh, it's a base. <laughs> He's oh, gone. It's gone. All right. Nice. Well, cool. That's a lot to unpack. So, I mean, did you go to J school? Did you do the whole, the whole nine yards or did you just get into it at an angle? I got into it at an angle. Actually, maybe you'll like this. This could be relevant. So I uh, went to college. I was an English major, St. John's university studied with J.F. Powers, who was an, uh, is a, a well-known, now-forgotten author. He won the 1963 National Book Award for his novel, Mort Durbin. But anyway, I decided I wanted to write fiction. I had this dream. I did a study abroad program in London my senior year. Oh, Part nice. of that, I did the Europe by uh, URail whirlwind tour, wound cool. up in Paris, fell in love with Paris. And then I decided after I graduated from college, moved back to Paris so I could retrace Hemingway's footsteps and learn to write fiction. So that's what I did. All right. What year was that roughly? 1986. And a completely different world. The wall was still up. Uh, yeah. yeah, totally, totally changed. Right, right. But it was still, you know, Hemingway said, 
Paris is a necessary part of a young man's education. And for me, it was a very good part of my education. Hmm. And, you know, I was fascinated with Hemingway. But I also, one of the best lessons I learned was that it quickly disabused me of all my romantic notions about just landing in the right place would make me a good writer. Uh, and I realized you have to sit your butt down in a chair and write every day. Right. So that I was able to cultivate that discipline. And I think that's what really got me uh, where I am today. I think, I think for uh, young writers, the risk of missing out on life is so extreme with writing. You can devote yourself to an entire novel that ends up in a, sh you know, in a uh, secretary somewhere. It's, it's sort of horrifying if you think like, oh my gosh, I might lose three years of my life to something that no one will ever read. Very few people talk about this, but that's definitely in play when you're, when you're a young writer. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the rejection is so discouraging, you know, sending out stories that would just come back with these, back in the day, we would do a sassy or a self-addressed stamped envelope where you'd include that mm. in the submission. Oh. And then you'd get this form letter back and you know, in your own handwriting, it was like masochism or something. Oh, Ooh, right. All these rejections. Um, but it, um, yeah, that, I mean, that, that was part of it, I think. And, um, you know, weeds out <laughs> the, the, um, gra um, the, chaff i guess from the i agree yeah there's a lot of that i think in the in my world in the theater which which will dovetail into this whole discussion there the uh, administrators have a tendency to make submissions really byzantine you have to do this 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 and this to submit to a given thing and and a lot of the impetus behind that is to weed out people who aren't serious because if you if you've written three or four plays and you've barely gotten any feedback back you know you're still toiling in the wilderness and you have to do another one of these submissions it can become very discouraging but you have to be kind of maniacal about it you have to believe in your in your work and your voice right yeah so you yeah. go through this as well right where you're you you have to actually write the work and then yeah. you send it in to see if someone will accept it yeah and right like, right oh. And you'll write three plays and then in crickets and then you'll write one and suddenly something will come about. And, and it's this hor almost horrific tease, right? You're just, you're angling for that feeling, that first moment you, you heard back from somebody who connected with the work, I guess. Yeah. So writers, writers can talk about writing all day, but so we, we connected because of a commission I had at history theater here in St. Paul. People who know me know about that. I wrote a play about Hemingway. Hemingway had, two rounds of electroshock therapy at the end of his life. And I had written a play about that. It's still sitting in my secretary. So if anybody's out there and is curious and wants to read it, I'm open to, to sharing it. Um, I wrote it partly because the, the star of Hemingway is sort of uh, waned in terms of American letters. We have this sort of extreme political moment that we're living through and it's uh, really actually echoing out of academia and, you know, with feminism and the sort of re revisiting the canon, not, many American authors have quite the same stink as Hemingway in terms of his machismo and all this other um, kind of all, the, all these perceptions of him because he was so out there and cartoonish, even in his own lifetime, he cultivated that mythic thing. And in this, this climate, you know, you would almost sort of say Faulkner or not Faulkner, uh, Fitzgerald has done a lot better in terms of the popular culture now than Hemingway. So I wrote that and then you heard about it and now you've done something amazing. You went on and dug deeper into the story, and that's that's how we got connected. Wait, let's yeah, but let's talk about your thing first, because I, I mean, as you're saying, it, it, it's so unfortunate that Hemingway has fallen out of the canon, out of favor, because of the Me Too. Well, I mean, he was guilty. I think terribly guilty. Sure, attitudes toward a women monster, and, a real but, yeah. But it's like the Me Too movement is you know buried him. I think um, yeah. except that 
Ken Burns is resuscitating the legend. And in April, his, um, I think it's a three-part, six-hour documentary on him mm. and air. So he's going to be relevant again. But um, I was fascinated by your play because I, you know, I'd, I'd moved Paris because I loved Hemingway. I'd read a bunch of Hemingway. Uh, you know, as a young man, I, I had this fascination with him. And then as I grew up, I was a bit disillusioned by him, particularly his attitudes against women. And also just that machismo he developed. I think I realized he was not a guy I'd want to spend time with. But then <laughs> I came across your play and I was fascinated by this because here was the, the great American writer. I mean, he was at, I'd say, 1960, arguably the, the greatest American writer you know, that, that at that time, sure. and Mayo Clinic, which was arguably the greatest medical center in the world. And these two intersect. And I had known nothing about that. That was a complete surprise to me. Yeah. I got lost over it in the biographies. Me too. And, yeah. But you, your play brought that to my attention and it fascinated me. And that's where I thought, my God, I got to learn more about this. So that's, I reached out to you. I gave you a phone call and we uh, talked and that got me started in my research. Right. And so before we go any further, where can people find you? And particularly this article that you wrote, which won an award and you've, you've, you've gone on and done a lot of work. People can find you at, is it John Rosengren dot net. Dot net. Okay, yeah. great. So and I'll, I'll make sure that's linked at get this podcast.com. Yep. Cool. And the article's right there. Yeah. Tell me, um, or your listeners, how did you first find out about this and get interested in this idea? Wow, that's wild. You know, it's been so many years now, five or six years since I started on the project. I can't even recall. I think, I think, I don't even know. It might have been. Is this one of those takeout moments you told me about? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to remove this. No, I, I really, I really, I really don't remember, frankly. I, I think that I had, I had been reading a lot of Hemingway uh, for whatever reason. And I guess I must have, you know, I think it might have been an article by Hotchner had probably uh, appeared in some, you know, and Hotchner was kind of uh, one of the biographers of, of Hemingway. He wrote his, he wrote his own biography. He was kind of a hanger on of, of, of Ernest's. And um, it must've been one of those because at the time I was looking for uh, things, stories to pitch uh, history theater. And so that must've been it. Yeah. Right. Well, I remember you telling me uh, when we talked, like we talked several times early on, and you were fascinated by the conflict between Hotch, mm-hmm. who um, seemed to be this um, guy wanting to to uh, uh, go out to dinner you know, on the Hemingway friendship, right? And right. then um, uh, Mary Walsh, his fourth wife, and the, the the tension between those two was what you I think it was, she was the fifth wife. Um, well, I think Badly, <laughs> yeah. Martha. And Mary. Am I wrong? Okay, I might be wrong. We'll have to look it oh, up. I, 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 I can do math up to four. <laughs> Why did I think she was the, the fifth? Because it was a lander. Oh, you're right. Of course, it was four. Okay, all right. And Mary, all the women got involved. Of but course. No, all right. that, that conflict, and that comes out in your play so well, the, the conflict in the end, well, I won't give it away, but the, um, uh, the, the, that contact, that tension between the two drove the story. Yeah, right. It's my play really is a more is more about Mary in a funny way. I mean, she's definitely a co-equal in in the play. Uh, again, it's been a while since I've really lived and dwelled in this one. So if I get a few details wrong, that's why. But yeah, I'm glad that the play spoke to you. That's very cool. It's nice when 
uh, you can make a, a meaningful connection and then inspire somebody to go and do something. That's all I've ever wanted to do as an artist, right? You want to inspire conversation and get people thinking in, yeah. in new and different ways. I still think that play could have a life. Uh, it's just I a question too. of, yeah. I think Anyone there's, out there, any producers? Hey. Yeah, put yeah. that stage. Get on the horn. Let's go. I, th there's room. I mean, if you, if you could do this right with the right uh, cast and the right venue in the right moment, uh, we have to wrestle with these monsters. He's the Minotaur at the center of the maze of the 20th century in terms of America and American machismo. So if you don't contend with him, if you just write him off, you're, you're going to miss out on, on all sorts of depth. And I'm not saying, you know, ah, he has to be restored to the, the pinnacle of the canon and we don't have to read any other, you know, we don't have to read Women of Color. We don't have, I'm not saying any of that. It's a yes and thing. Let's read it all. Let's right. get Faulkner in there. Let's get, yeah. Virginia right. Woolf. Let's read all these people. I believe his work still stands out. Oh, you know, yeah. I think um, Farewell to Arms, um, uh, uh, um, Sun Also Rises, um, you know, several of the short stories, Snows of Kilimanjaro, um, yeah. Greenwell Lighted Place. Uh, I love the short Happy Life of Francis McComber, uh, you know, and, and others. Um, but the those hold up, I think. But also, Hemingway, I think, is more that relevant than ever with our growing awareness about mental illness. And mm -hmm. it's the destigmatization of that and our, our growing understanding of it and also looking at how to treat it. And I think Andrew Farrell also made it more relevant with his book, Hemingway's Brain, which posits that Hemingway had CTE, or the effects of CTE. Yeah. And sure. I, to me, that makes perfect sense and explains why the treatments at Mayo were ultimately unsuccessful. So I think, you know, he belongs in the discussion both for his work and his life and, uh, and his death. Well, and that, that last book too, The Garden of Eden, is very weird and doesn't quite fit into the, the model of Hemingway. And there's this weird sort of sexuality, sexuality in Hemingway that isn't quite as blunt as the myth would have you seem, I think, or would have you believe. I think that uh, one of the reasons that he's so erased from from the consideration, and of course, hopefully, this Burns special will kind of start the conversation up again. That'd be, I mean, if, if anybody can do it, it's Burns. Uh, but it's that he was a monster of the left, and I really think that they they have a hard time kind of coping with that, right? Because it, the left has has completely transformed into, of course, the new left, and it's like this this machismo of the old left is so alien now. I, I was watching the film. Did you see the film Frida? Uh, the Frida yeah. Kahlo movie. Yeah, they yeah. kind of get at it a little bit. This kind of Latin intense, uh, and and of course Hemingway lived most of his adult life in Cuba. Uh, just a lot to unpack here. May I? Yeah, go ahead. He's more a fan of Batiste than uh, and the the free um, freedoms under Batiste than he was on, of uh, Castro. Yeah, he did this fishing tournament with Castro. But and, and the um, press wanted to paint him as his buddy of Castro, and right. of course the FBI was investigating him as a result of that. But I don't think Hemingway was a socialist or was a, a guy who was um, uh, was you know embracing Castro and, and waving. The no, flag. I don't think so either. But he was firmly on the left, uh, yeah. without a doubt. Can I may I say yeah. when the the Bataclan attack happened? Was it in 2017? I'm looking at an article right now. Uh, no, it was earlier than that. When was that? 2015. So in, in remember the, the, the savage in Paris. So there's a headline here. It's from NPR. It's a headline. It says, 
Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast hits French bestseller list after Paris attacks. It's almost yeah. like in solid. He's written, he wrote one of the, the finest books on Paris and he's an American. What a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, and that was actually my introduction. When I was doing this uh, Europe uh, whirlwind tour, I had gone to Paris and then I, in Florence at an English speaking bookstore or English language bookstore, I picked up a copy of A Movable Feast, read it, you know, like that on the yeah. train and then returned to Paris on that trip. And one night my girlfriend and I had a fight and I left the hotel, you know, in the middle of the night and I walked and retraced these steps, you know, to the, um, where he lived up in, um, sure. Uh, Rue Mouffetard up that yep. area, Place de la Contrescarpe, and then all over the left bank. And, uh, it was just, you know, fascinating for me to, like, I went to La Closerie de Lila and all that, you know, looking at all these places and that's where I fell in love with Hemingway and, um, you know, why I moved back there. So that book was very influential to me. And I agree with you. I think it's one of the greatest. And I love the, how it begins with that image of the, all the, the drunks and the derelicts and Cafe des Artistes and the septic truck that comes along and drains the toilets, but nobody drains the cafe. <laughs> it's such a marvelous beginning. Yeah, really wonderful. And when you know that he was working on that at the end of his life, it was the last thing he was working on. It adds this kind of extra... Uh, a bittersweet quality to the the reading of it. Um, so let's get into it, right? I mean, we're already geeking out on this stuff. Uh, I would encourage people, if you haven't read Hemingway, pick it up. Pick up A Movable Feast. It's a great place to start. Uh, it's grounded in reality. Uh, it's a cr pretty quick read. I would say get the version that uh, wasn't edited by Mary. So get the real deal. You can find it. Um, but so what did you, so you went on a journey and you wrote this article. What's the name of the, the article? The Old Man in the Clinic. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, the old man in yeah. the clinic was published in Minneapolis St. Paul magazine. I think February, twenty nineteen. Um, yeah. So, and what's interesting to me is, so I grew up in Minneapolis, the suburb of Minneapolis. Live in Minneapolis now. Rochester is about eighty miles away. Um, I'd spent time there. My father was a patient at St. Mary's Hospital, which is part of the Mary, uh, Mayo Clinic, where Hemingway was also a patient at St. Mary's Hospital. Um, and so I was familiar with it and um, had had this fascination as a kid with the Mayo brothers and um, Rochester itself. Uh, my, one of my college roommates was from Rochester, actually lived, <clears throat> excuse me, on Balsam Court, where it was one of the places where Hemingway would go on his walks. Uh, a nurse would drive him out in the country to the edge of town and then he'd walk. And uh, anyway, my roommate didn't move there till after Hemingway had passed through, but uh, you know, just those connections were fascinating to me. But, but Rochester is really, it's sort of a sleepy little town, except for the Mayo Clinic, which right. has this international scope and, you know, and all attracts all sorts of celebrity. Um, and people are pretty accustomed to, you know, the King of Jordan or uh, Johnny Carson or you know, people that are <laughs> right. in town getting treated at the Mayo Clinic. But back in 1960 and 61, when Hemingway was there, I think people were um, surprised to see him walking around the town. Uh, there were reports of him even drinking in a bar um, at the Kaler Hotel there. Um, but but yeah, like one woman or the son writing about his mother says she's washing tails in the sink, looks up and sees this guy. And it's like, oh my God, that's Ernest Hemingway. And there's another story a woman told me how um, Hemingway had come over for to their house for dinner. The family had befriended Hemingway and we can talk more about that, the right near since the front. But so they'd be friend of Hemingway, came over for dinner and he was early and kind of wanted something to do. 
and uh, offered to mow the lawn. And said, <laughs> go ahead. So Ernest Hemingway's out there mowing the lawn, and this neighbor comes by to pick up something out of the uh, neighborhood freezer, which is kept in this family's garage. So she goes to get some meats out of this freezer. And yeah. she goes home and tells her husband, oh, the Rynearsons have a new gardener who looks exactly like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, and that thick Minnesota accent too, right? Oh, you know, right. what's you going know? on there? Yeah, don't you know? I think we Ernest, they, oh yeah. Well, you know, and what's wild, and just to give people context of people who don't know, we're talking about Elvis level fame here. This is on par with Elvis. People can pick him out. He can't go anywhere in Spain without being mobbed. Uh, yeah. Most probably France too. We're talking about it just in a level of fame that no writer alive today really has. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to fathom. It would be akin to, I don't know. Uh, well, I was going to say Kanye. That. It'd be yeah, like Kanye exactly. level. Huge. Yeah. Um, or, or, I was thinking of Prince when he died, sure. the, the level of attention he got. It was like that. I mean, yeah. and, and enormous. Yeah. So interesting. It tells you so much about our culture. We've changed over from this fetish of the word, and now it's more mixed media and music and things. It's, it's changed a lot. It's hard to imagine a celebrity writer uh, coming out of the – I mean, I guess Franzen was on the cover of uh, – was it Life or Time magazine or whatnot? But it's hard to imagine Jonathan Franzen being mobbed <laughs> by fans. I mean, great writer. No, you know, not knocking him, but it's a different. Uh, Similar misogynist uh, tendencies. <laughs> really loves birds. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think anybody's told Franzen that birds are fake. Have you mm -hmm. heard this conspiracy theory that birds aren't real? Oh, I have, yeah, my son. <laughs> well, that's a bit of a tangent. So you were, so you're talking about Hemingway mowing the yard. You know, he was there in Rochester, Minnesota, in in December of uh, 1960, and then again. Yeah, I think yeah. he arrived like real late, maybe November 30th or something, right. um, uh, 1960, and was there till January 20. I want to say sixth. Um, and one of the things, one of the major things I remember from this is that the first round of electroshock therapy, he was still awake when they did it and they changed the procedure between the first round he received in, in late 60 and then the second treatment he received, they anesthetized him. And I just, one of the things that drew me to this story was this idea of this. I'm very, I've always been, I'm, I'm, I've always been very interested in people who from the outside you would think would have, have it all just complete, I think about Amy Winehouse, right? And sure. and how tragic that is. And you look at it from the outside and you're like, I'm I'm worried about my my rent, my mortgage, I'm worried about putting my kids through college, I'm worried about insurance. Here's this person who could, in theory, you would think go anywhere, do anything, and then they fall into this pit. Another recent example, very famous writer was Jordan Peterson, right? He had that moment where he completely broke out. Uh, you know, suffered a lot of attacks and and then he ended up in this like horrible situation with like benzo addiction and withdrawal. It's this whole thing. And whenever I hear a story like that, somebody who's just climbed the mountain, the contrast between Hemingway, the vigorous writer, and then this idea of this guy who ends up trapped in the Mayo Clinic, uh, in Mayo Clinic at the end of his life, it, it's just so incongruous. There's a story there. There's a lot of energy there. Yeah. Right, right. Well, he was such a broken man by then, yet, um, wanted so desperately to cling to what he'd been yeah. and you know it's hard to re i mean he was 61 years old about to turn 62 you know july of 
the year he died. But um, he was so, he looked so much older and so much more, you know, uh, his body looked like it had been through so much more. It looked like an 80-year-old body. But there's a story that I heard that just really um, drove home this point to, to me of how desperate his situation was, what a shell he was of who he'd been. And that was this girl told me, or this woman told me that when she was a 12-year-old girl, she was friends with the daughter of one of the physicians who treated Hemingway, um, uh, Hugh Butt. So she's over at their house and gets introduced to Hemingway. Really has no idea who he is. But Hemingway says, go ahead, flexes his stomach muscles and says, go ahead, hit me as hard as you can. And this was a kind of a parlor trick he'd done in the past, you know, when he was more virile. Yeah, stout. Here he is. Tell, and so she does, you know, punches him and his stomach is, you know, he's hit hard muscles and like, oh, wow. But it's just so pathetic to me that here he is trying to impress this 12-year-old girl. He's just yeah. with how strong and tough he is. Yeah. And, hmm. uh, to me, that just spoke or said hmm. so much about his condition at the time. Well, and what do you think, aside from the, the alcoholism, contributed to the early aging? Was it the, the numerous head injuries? Was it the heart? What was it, do you think? Was it the iron deficiency that they talk about in the family? or? Well, I th um, it's interesting. I talk, My roommate's father, actually, uh, Bill Baldus Sr., uh, specializes in, in hematic hematomas. I can never <laughs> say that word. The iron deficiency. Iron deficiency, yeah. yeah. That's how I put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, anyway, his specialty, and he'd written several papers on it, and I asked him to research this, because that's been posited as, or put forth as a theory of what it was. Even for their, su even for the suicide in the family. Right. That, yeah. Right, exactly. Not just his, but his family, others in the family. But I don't think that was the cause. And, and actually, Hugh Butt had said, maybe there's, there's the answer to that. And that was just coming to be understood, too, at the time in medical textbooks and stuff. But anyway, no, I don't think that was um, the cause. I think it was the hard drinking. I think it was the uh, medication he was on. He, I mean, I think that was wearing on him as well, the Reserprin as well as the Ritalin. And then, obviously, the head injuries, right? You know, the famous plane crashes, the skylight in Paris coming down on his head, yeah. Yeah. Um, car accidents. Um, and then I think there were multiple other sub-concussive blows, which are, we're starting to understand now that's really what's at the root of CTE. I mean, Hemingway probably had a dozen concussions in his life, but then all these other sub-concussive blows, whether it was from boxing or sure. other you know, minor car accidents and stuff. Uh, so I think all this contributed to his... Uh, aging rapidly and yeah. uh, premature. I'm going to guess diet too. I mean, the diet was different then and who knows what he was eating down in Cuba. I mean, I like the romantic notion that him having to uproot from Cuba really was bad. I think, I think if he, he had been able to stay in Cuba longer. He may have, have lived longer. That's just a pet theory that I have. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I think huh. his health would have caught up to him. Kind yeah. of where, wherever he was. It's kind of like switching seats at that Titanic. <laughs> you know, it down wherever. Yeah, it's tough. Well, of course, he had his, le he had his legs blown up in, in Italy when he was, what, 18, 18, yeah. 19, something like, like that. Yeah. Legs. Well, so you had an experience. We, were, we, were, we got a breakfast um, here in recently, and you mentioned some photography that you found, and I'm really fascinated mm -hmm. by that. I think people would be very interested in what you found. You mentioned that family where he was mowing their yard, right? Okay. So this, uh, to me, it's an interesting story. I hope your listeners and you find it interesting as well. I was down there um, 
doing some research, you know, going through the Mayo archives and stuff, trying to learn what I could about Hemingway's time in Rochester, talking to whoever I could. And I had lunch with a friend of mine, Paul Scott, who is a writer and lives there. And um, by the way, aside, Paul has just written a novel. I thought I had a copy here called Malchrist. We just did an event on Thursday night, and it's a really good novel. So go out and buy okay. Malchrist. It's like you, Chris, but Malchrist. All, All right. right. Cool. So back to the story. Paul and I, we have lunch. And then um, we're, uh, and he's fascinated by Hemingway, and his novel actually builds upon some of the, um, th a theory that Hemingway uh, was actually reacting to this reserpine drug that he was on. Uh -huh. And that was the cause of his downfall. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm telling him I want to talk to people. And he says, well, let's, we're, we're walking by a pharmacy downtown. And he says, let's go in here because this guy, the pharmacist often knows a lot of stuff. So we just out of the blue walk in the pharmacy and Paul says, hey, this is my buddy. He's doing an article about Ernest Hemingway being in Rochester, treated Mayo. Uh, what do you know about that? And the pharmacist says, well, you know, I, I don't know a lot. And then this guy stocking the toothbrushes says, Oh, yeah. You know, didn't he hang out over in Sunny Slopes um, at that house, uh, uh, you know, on the corner and, and with the swimming pool? And Paul said, do you mean the one with the swimming pool on the corner? Olympic Drive or whatever it is, Sunset Trail? Yeah, yeah, that one. So Paul says, oh, I know the owners of that house. So we drive over to this house and these people say, it's, it's uh, Kathy and I can't remember the guy's name, um, but the guys, we go knock on the door, the guy's home. And he says, oh, yeah, hi, Paul, come on in. And he tells us how Ernest Hemingway used to come over there, not when they were living there, but the previous family who had sold it to him. This family was called the Rynearsons. And what had happened is the son, um, Bob Rynearson was a resident in the psychiatry unit. Hope this isn't going on too long. No, this is perfect. This is what we're here to do. No, this I, is great. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating by this. So Bob Rynearson is a, a resident. And the head of psychiatry who's treating Hemingway, uh, Howard Rome, says, Bob, why don't you keep Ernest entertained? Help him socialize. Because right. Hemingway is staying in this locked unit. There are bars on the windows and the doors are locked, but he's uh, sweet-talked his way into getting permission to come and go as he pleases. Sure. Uh, and so anyway, you know, Hemingway, very social guy. Uh, the psychiatrist at uh, Rome says, Bob, you take care of him, you know, help him socialize. So Bob brings him over to his parents' house, which is this house in Sunny Slope. And they have brunch. And um, then they go down to the pool that you've heard about, first above ground pool, or I think it was first in ground pool in Rochester. Uh -huh. So um, they have, all have a good time and they invite him back. And so he goes back there several times on Sundays. Uh, and this is just about an hour and a half walk sorry, not an hour and a half, a mile and a half walk from St. Mary's Hospital. So it's real close. And then um, they invite him over for dinner, cook green turtle soup for him. That's his favorite. Um, that's when he mowed the lawn. Uh, they have him back for another dinner. So anyway, he socializes with his family. Long story, but the owner, the current owner of the house says to us, yeah, matter of fact, we have pictures. And he takes out these photographs that had never been published before that have just sort of been passed on with the house and they show the two of them that we saw. One of them shows Hemingway standing with um, the woman who owned the house uh, and then Bob's sister who uh, was also there for the brunch. And Hemingway is kind of just standing there looking a little morose. And I think you've seen this photo. 
and, sure. and looking like he's in his 80s. He doesn't look like a man who's in his yeah. 60s. Yeah, yeah. early he 60s. He's, he weighs about 175 pounds, which is the weight they told me he needed to get to. But he's been, you know, 210 was probably more his ideal weight. So, yeah, he looks emaciated and gaunt and drawn, and his face just looks so haggard, you know, like this guy who, yeah, in his 80s. And, and it just looks so sad, right? Yeah. And then there's another photo that shows him with a sandwich in hand, shadow boxing with Bob, and he's smiling, and he just looks like he's full of life and happiness. And it, looking at that one, it's so hard to imagine that, geez, this guy killed himself like three weeks later. Yeah. And so yeah. those photos were just stunning to me for how they depicted him and his, you know, the various stages or moods, I guess, of those days. And they were, I think they were the last photographs taken of him alive. I think it's incredible that this little thread from history theater to your work on this and obviously your your journalism and your stroke of luck down there too. I mean, it's such a Minnesota moment. It's like, oh, you do, do you mean the house there with the pool yeah. there? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. well there, yeah, the Renearsons. <laughs> I mean, you can just see it out. It's like it's like straight out of straight out of Fargo. Uh, it's just great. And of course, you could use the pool two months out of the year, right? <laughs> Maybe the Coen Brothers will write the script. Oh no, no, no! G- give me a give me a call. Give me a call. Well, they could produce. Okay, we'll work with. Oh, yeah, the Coen- yeah, well, yeah, right. Yeah, hey. yeah, right. Give us a ring. Um, but uh, yeah, no, we're due for a, a serious Hemingway biopic, uh, and uh, this would be an interesting angle. The um, well, so that's that's so fascinating. So you may have found the final through this the final photographs of Ernest Ernest, Ernest Hemingway alive. What a world! And you know, when you think you've you've seen it all, yeah, you're showing me these. Are they going to be published? Is there is there anywhere we can show them to people, or what's happening with that? Well, the, um, I've pitched the idea to several magazines that hey you should write or, you know, I recommend that your policies and um, haven't been able to get any traction, but I'll tell you another serendipitous story. If you'd like, for sure. Uh, We've together a few more themes. So um, there is a movie in production right now that Mariel Hemingway has worked on about a movable feast. So I'll use that as my jumping off point. I went after my article came out, I was still so fascinated by this and I'd done so much research. I thought, you know, there's enough here for a book. So, I went out to Sun Valley Ketchum to do some research. And I met a guy who as a ten, his parents had befriended Hemingway and Ketchum, the Greys. And Hemingway flirted sort of unabashedly with the mother, but they went over, or Hemingway would spend time at their house. And so this uh, man who's now 70, but he was a 10 year old boy in uh, you know late 50s, um, early 60s. Uh, well, he wasn't 10 that whole time, but you know, he's a young boy. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, he remembers watching uh, the debut, uh, a television debut of one of Hemingway's films. I can't remember which one it was, but you know it's on maybe TV. Maybe a farewell to arms, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, and then anyway, he um, so and he remembers sitting on the couch, like Hemingway says during a commercial break. Okay, it's time for the boys to learn how to drink from a wine skin. And so <laughs> there's this ten-year-old boy and his older brother and another kid, George Sager's son actually, and they're. Um, Hemingway brings out this wine skin and the mom's horrified and she puts down towels on the couch and um, they're, you know, trying to drink. And Hemingway said, no, you're holding it too close. They're drinking red wine. You know, out of this. Yeah. This, right. Right. Hold it back. And they yep. see, I just remember getting very wet. Um, so <laughs> so wait, that's fantastic. It was probably uh, for whom the bell tolls. And if there, that would make the connection with the wine yeah, skin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, right. um, another book that holds up very well over time. Yeah. 
And I For just sure. a movie with Gary Cooper and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Oh my God, that holds up <laughs> just for her blue eyes. <laughs> um, cool. So, um, I need to pause for a moment to think about that. Sorry, no. Um, so <laughs> anyway, there are, um, him would also go over and he'd um, go for walks. And he'd take this boy, his name's Jed Gray, take Jed for walks, okay? Uh, and, and anyway, Jed showed me the road where they'd walk. And then he said, you know, I need to stop over at the house. He's living somewhere else, but he's he's still owns the family home and he's renting it. And Mariel Hemingway is staying at the house right then. And so he says, do you mind? <laughs> and I'm like, do I mind if we go over and meet Meryl? I went, no, I don't mind. So we go over there and Jed introduces me and tells me that they're, um, I'm, you know, interested in writing this book, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So I get to chat with Meryl Hemingway, who, by the way, is beautiful. Um, great smile. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, uh, anyway, so we get to chat and we're, and, um, we're talking a bit and then, uh, but, but not a lot. I mean, cause, Jed's doing his business and we caught him in the middle of something, but she gets the idea of what I'm about and doing. So anyway, say goodbye. I said, I'll call you. Um, I, I was doing research at the library. I didn't have time that week. Uh, the last two days I was there, but on my way out of town, I think I'm going to drive out and see the Memorial. There's a bust of Hemingway just outside of town. Have you been to Ketchum, by the way? I have not been to Ketchum. It's a beautiful town to visit regardless, but to be able to see his house and all. Sure. You know, I, it's worth it for a Hemingway fan. So anyway, I'm driving out of town, but I can't find this damn bus because it's not well marked. And I've driven, I'm sure I've gone past it. And I'm like, ah, shit, where is it? So I see this woman walking these dogs on the side of the road. And I think, oh, must be a local walking dogs, right? So I pull over, or I, I roll down my window, you know, and pull over and say, excuse me. And she turns and it's Meryl Hemingway. And she says, oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I ran into her again, and I said, I'm looking for the bus. She said, it's down there. Okay, fine. I go get But it was just wonderful to be able to see her again out on the uh, for the walk. And then I did manage to connect with her by phone, and we chatted. Oh, nice. Grandfather. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. What did so she have was, to say? A story, you know. I, yeah. I renting his house to Marilyn Hemingway. Wonderful. Did she, was it a private conversation, or can you tell us uh, something she told you? Oh, she whispered sweet nothing. So. <laughs> I wish. Um, no, uh, <laughs> she did not know. <laughs> I live in the world of fantasy. Right yeah, now. right. No, I can tell you're, you know, this is, this is wonderful. This is, the, I, I love that this is the, the breadcrumbs of taking you, you know, to, uh, to Rochester to catch. How did you get to catch him? Did you drive or did you fly out? I, I uh, it's funny people, I wanted to drive, but people warned me that there's some mountain passes that are really bad in the winter. I ended up going out in April, and so I flew to Boise, and uh, I'd lived in Boise before, so I got to see some people, and then I drove yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah great. Power drive. Well, and so what is the – so you write this article, and what is the, what is the reaction been to the article? I, I can't be the only person who's spoken with you about yeah. it. Well, it's yeah. interesting. Actually, another playwright contacted me who worked some at Minnesota History uh, Theater, and I, I think I told you about her. And I, and I actually told her, well – Thanks. Uh, she wanted to write a screen or a play, and I said thanks, but I, you know, feel like I owe it to Kevin to work with him if we do that. Yeah. So um, I remain committed. But then a, a producer uh, from Hollywood contacted me, and we got together, and uh, she introduced me to a screenwriter, and we talked about the idea, but couldn't quite agree on how to go about the project. So, and then actually another uh, producer put out a feeler, but I don't think it was a real serious offer, and. Uh, 
So it remains available if someone. I think, to. yeah. I mean, I think it, it could be amazing for the screen. I don't know if it's the right angle for the screen, this sort of end of life. I think it would have to be part of a, a bigger biopic. It would have to be kind of a more sweeping thing. Whereas I think for the stage, the idea of him in this cloistered environment at, at the end, I think has so much potential. That's why I said it there. So I don't know who, who knows, maybe one day it'll have a life. Uh, it's all about meeting the right people and having the right, you need that right actor for Hemingway. You have to get that. And it's gotta be the right moment too. And then of course, Mary, we can't forget about Mary and her story. What, what's your, so for Hemingway's fourth and final wife, uh, who he was with, I think the longest, am I, am I mistaken? Yeah. They were together the longest, um, couldn't have children. Um, she Both had a ectopic pregnancy right. and nearly died in Wyoming. And Hemingway, in perhaps his most heroic moment, truly heroic moment of his life, saved mm. her life with um, helping get a blood transfusion into her when the nurse was struggling with it. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's why she couldn't have children. She wanted children. Hemingway wanted a daughter. She had hoped that she could give him that daughter. Mm. But Right. But you were asking a question. I, no, I, what, what is your impression about their relationship? Because I have strong feelings about it based on my research and writing of the play. What's your impression? Because she's the one who kind of forced him into Mayo, kind of marshaled him along. Yeah. Uh, it seems like they were, they were certainly, uh, it was complicated by the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Very enmeshed, you know, symbiotic, uh, unhealthy. I think she, um, was you know a professional woman her in her own right right and married when they met and they met in london yes and yep. she was working as a correspondent there and had her own career and was quite accomplished uh woman but i think she was a bit gob i mean she kind of claims not to be but i think she was gobstruck and i think she loved his celebrity and the doors that opened for her and the way she got to live as a result right uh, travel and stuff but I think she uh, hated him at times. And I think he was very mean to her, very cruel. I mean, your play captured that well, I thought. And at the same time, they had these moments, it seems. There's almost any abusive relationship follows that pattern of, you know, the um, abuse and then the reconciliation, the guilt on the husband's part, and then the, the kind of making up and he can be very sweet. She falls in love with again and then he abuses her. And they, I think they replicated that pattern. Um, I think she was terrified at the end about his health and about his, you know, he was imagining people spying on him behind the bathroom door, you know, and it's like, that's hard to live with someone uh, at that degree of, of um, uh, advanced stage of mental illness. And so I think she was really scared and uh, afraid. And, and, you know, there's the story of her coming across him in April. So after his first round of, treatment at Mayo when he went back to catch him. And then she comes across him in the um, living room and he's got his shotgun with two shells on the windowsill. And um, she's worried that he might shoot her. Yeah. You know? and it's I, like, I think I have that moment in the play where it's like, why do you need two? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. And yes. And yet, it was yeah. quite simple. It just was a double-barreled shotgun, and sure. you trip both barrels at once. It's like right. the belt and the belt and suspenders approach to suicide, right? You want to make sure you get the job done. One shell's not enough. You got to use two, right? But anyway, uh, it was. Um, it, I'm sure she was terrified, and and you know, poor Mary too. I think she uh, she was an alcoholic and died of alcoholism at the end. And I 
think her alcoholism was pretty well advanced as well at uh, by 1960-61 when Hemingway died. So, you know, I'm sure she said awful, cruel things to him. Yeah. Have them. It's always, yeah, her book and her sort of florid prose and her sentimentality, uh, sentimentality and everything, it didn't really stand up very well. And, uh, but yeah, it could not have been easy for her at all. And, no. uh, it's a, it's a pity he, he wasn't able to stay cogent and maybe get another story out or another book out. Uh, if you, if you had to talk to somebody who maybe has that high school level understanding of Hemingway, they've read the old man of the sea or they've read the crib notes anyway, uh, which have to be about as big as the book itself, right? That's a, yeah. That's a slim tome. Uh, what would you What would you tell people who are maybe skeptical still and go, I, I don't need to read this misogynist. Uh, da, da, da. What would you What would you tell someone who's maybe wary of it? Yeah, I think reading a clean, well lighted place, you know, is is eye opening just for what a writer can do with a short story. I think, like I mentioned earlier, Snows of Kilimanjaro. I think that's a powerful story. Um, I think. Um, I can't remember the title of it now, darn it. It's one of his early stories where the father, um, the Indians commit suicide while the father, the father, the Indian father commits suicide while Nick Adams' father is delivering a baby and the mm-hmm. father, guy who kills himself in the bunk above. I mean, it's just so. Indian camp. I yeah, yeah. I just looked yeah, it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I think some of those stories can be eye-opening and I think they're as good as anybody's really. And so I think those are worth reading. You know, I, th- I like Gold Man in the Sea too. And I just reread that about three, four years ago. And I know some of the critics have dismissed that, but um, I thought that was a powerful work. And I think that holds up as well. So I think even but, if you're doing a, you know, almost like a, a, just a, you're giving yourself your, your Americana, you owe it to yourself. I mean, he brought journalistic prose into the novel, transformed the way. I mean, what did he say? He said, I taught the world to speak American. Yeah. There's something to that. You owe it to yourself at least to kind of know what it is. You can dismiss it and kind of write it off. Uh, I think he was, and he's way more problematic. And when you read the work, there's way more stuff in there. If it was all this kind of uh, adventuring Indiana Jones nonsense, he never would have, uh, ascended to where he did it's he he did get to where he was for a reason yeah uh, yeah not least because he was worldly too there's this other thing about americans where we do have a reputation for being parochial and deservedly uh hemingway was anything but parochial um and that i think that i think is powerful uh yeah mm-hmm. interesting yeah. although well just to play devil's advocate, I think when he sure. went to China with Martha Geller and he, he was parochial, like he didn't like the way things were done, you know, it's not Spain. And uh, so he was well-traveled in Europe and uh, uh, Cuba um, and maybe somewhat through the Caribbean, um, but he, he liked his corners, you know. I, yeah. I think he was particular to those areas and uh, not maybe as uh, open-minded to other areas. Uh, well, the Gellhorn thing is interesting too. Talk a little bit about that. What do you make of their relationship? She wrote the, what was it? Travels with myself and another. <laughs> that that marriage was never going to last. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because she gets um, chastised um, because she wouldn't submit, you know, to him. And mm. but it also sounds like he was so abusive to her too. And, uh, you know, good for her for taking off. I think the kids liked her. Um, that seems to be, you know, 
the, him or his three boys seemed to like her and spending time with her. Um, I think they liked her better than Mary. Um, so uh, maybe she gets, um, she doesn't get a fair shake. Um, you know, Hemingway just crucified her, like sexually complaining about her and stuff. Oh, jeez. And, and all this bitter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have you been to the house in Key West? That'd yeah. be fun. Oh, you have? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. When was yeah. that? Uh, about four years ago, we stopped oh, nice. on the keys and went down there. And um, yeah, it's um, it's cool. He's got a little writer studio off the master bedroom. You can reach it with a, a little catwalk. And um, I think one of the things I admired about Henry was these places he had to write. You know, they're always somewhat romantic and idyllic. And um, I, I would love to have written in the places where he wrote. One of his tricks that I adopted when I was much younger that I think still is true is you write to the edge of what you know, but no further. You go to the point where you know what's going to happen next. Yeah. So it can percolate in your brain. Then you come back and you write that next thing and keep going. You don't write all the way to the very end when you're writing something. Yeah. Yeah. I, early on, that was influential to me. And also then starting the next day by reading what you read or sorry, reading over what you'd written the day before, polishing that, and then moving on with the train of thought. And so I think that's actually an advice to anybody, but certainly to younger writers, just try that. I think it's anything that you're doing that's probably good advice. When you started uh, writing the article, what was your approach to it? Did you go in with assumptions? I mean, what was sort of broken up by your research? What did you, yeah. Well, there's a sense that something must have gone wrong at Mayo, that, you know, he he received these treatments, <clears throat> two series of electroshock treatments, as you mentioned, and then was discharged. The doctor said, okay, you're ready to go home. And I mean, less than a week later, he kills himself. And yeah. so uh, something went wrong. And I think that's what I set out to find out and, all, and to explore. Um, but also just this idea that here's a guy, the second time around, he was on this locked unit. And yet they let him have free, you know, come and go as he pleased, as I said. And then in the first time around, they took him trap shooting. Like here's a guy who was thinking about shooting <laughs> a shotgun in his hand, you know, or <clears throat> he was able to drink. Um, yeah. Right. And uh, uh, okay. So we didn't understand alcoholism as well back then, but it just seems like, you know, you or I might say, Hmm, not a good idea. <laughs> uh, at the and, same time, how do you say no to Ernest Hemingway at this point well, in his life? And I think that's part of it for these doctors, like the psychiatrist, Howard Rome, was a great fan of literature. And he thought Dostoevsky could explain more about the human condition than most psychiatric textbooks. And he's so, not wrong. I, I, no, he's probably not. But so <laughs> then here comes Ernest Hemingway right. into his office. Um, you know, he's got to be thinking, not just patients sitting in front of me, but, oh, my God, Ernest Hemingway is in my office. And they did talk about literature and other things and, and some of the themes of literature of uh, Hemingway's novels and, you know, the idea of honor. And so I think Rome may have been a little um, blindsided or not blindsided, but um, it may have affected his judgment and his, the way he viewed Hemingway. He may not have been able to view Hemingway as objectively as he would have a more anonymous patient. Yeah. My takeaway researching the play is comparable to what you said earlier about Cuba. He, I don't think there was any saving him at this point. He had made his mind up, I think. Uh, I think he was just waiting for the right moment. And the way he did it, I also think, was a bit of a jab at Mary. He could have, he could have been gentler. 
Oh, you know, obviously she's the one who's going to find him. Uh, and, terrible. Um, it was, I think it was terribly cruel. You know, his final act of cruelty toward her to um, yeah. himself as he did. Where what he, a thing. Yeah, I mean, the guy could have gone out in the woods. Right? Yeah, he could have gone out in the woods and uh, he could have made a call, gone out into the woods, done it, and then some paramedics could have found them or whatnot. But no, it had to be... Had to be Mary. John, this is a lot of fun talking about Hemingway. Uh, people can find you at John Rosengren, uh, R-O-S-E-N-G-R-E-N dot net. Yes. And uh, the article, The Old Man in the Clinic, is their award-winning article. You, you won, what, what was the award you won? I know the you did. Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. All right. Won award, so cool. A little bit of award. Yeah, but, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, awards are cool. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And uh, so, and people can find your books too. So you've written, you said you wrote nine books. Are you working on anything new? Do you have a new, I mean, are you going to write a book about the Hemingway stuff or what are you thinking? Oh, I'd like to. Uh, it's a bit, I mean, the obstacle is what we've been talking about, how Hemingway's fallen out of favor. And so finding an editor who's interested in taking on the project who thinks, you know, he or she can sell enough books to justify it. So I wonder if with the uh, the Ken Burns business, we could be we could be seeing some because he has such an impact on the culture. Uh, right. I, what a real I American genius! Yeah. yeah, go on. Um, I have my eye on that, and, and yeah. that would be the moment for it. Um, but it's, I'm also I'm working on some uh, uh, you know I've been working on articles, um, and I had a novel come out in the spring um, called A Clean Heart. And so I've been trying to promote that amidst the pandemic, which is not an easy task. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how people can see more about that on my website as well. Do you ever do anything over at the loft or around town? You must. Yeah, I've taught uh, at the loft in the past and I've taught in the journalism school at the University of Minnesota. Um, so that's kind of a nice balance of solitude of writing. Um, but my first love is writing. Yeah. And are you your full-time freelance, what you do, you're pitching and writing and all yeah. right. Yeah. Living yeah. the dream, man. Right. Uh, sometimes a little more hustling than I'd like. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a strange time. I don't think anybody's having a, having a good time of things, but I mean, if you're, you got your head above ground and you're, you know, you got your head in the game, you're doing all right. Well, what I would love, yeah, go on. I'm actually having one of the best years I've ever had with, um, the selling what I'm selling and, and uh, don't being, say it too loudly. <laughs> People are going to be <laughs> you know, yeah, hair man, hair. knock on wood. There you go. Um, well, yeah. Well, John, this was a real pleasure. I enjoyed it. So again, people can find you at John Rosengren.net, uh, the old man in the clinic. Um, and what did, what did Hemingway, he had the belt from the dead Nazi soldier, the dead German soldier that said, Gott mit uns. Uh, do you remember that? The Gottfried right from your play. It's, uh, yeah. Portalized it. The very famous belt from Hemingway. Uh, wait, I know we're going to go here, but, um, and, and this is Kevin Kautzman with Get This Podcast, getthispodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. John, before you go, talk to me real briefly about like, you wrote three books on baseball. Yeah. What does it feel like this year? We really don't have baseball, do we? We do, but no fans. What's your feeling about the situation right now? It feels a little artificial. I, I don't like the noise, the artificial no, fan noise and stuff, but it's still the same game with the, uh, you know, pitcher, batter, duel. Um, you know, what's he going to throw on a one-two count? Uh, that's, that hasn't changed. And so yeah. I'd love watching it. I, I was sorry to see the Twins go so early. Um, but, you know, I've really enjoyed this too. It's been fun yeah. to talk to you. And thanks so much for having me on. Of Kevin. course. Yeah, John, this is a lot of fun. Let's go to a Twins game sometime and watch him lose. 
Have a guaranteed loss. Okay, let's do this again, John. Take care. Take care. Bye bye.